This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hi guys, it's Chris from Offscript and welcome along to another big interview. And in this edition, well, we're hearing the story of former master jewel thief. His name is Larry Lawton. What a story this man has to tell. He was a former associate of the infamous Gambino crime family, one of the five families that dominate organised crime activities in New York City, known, of course, as the American Mafia. Now, over seven years back in the 1990s, Larry heisted over 20 stores. He got away with between 15 and 18 million dollars in diamonds alone. He was at the time one of the biggest jewel thieves in the United States of America so much so that in 1996 he was on the FBI's most wanted list. He would go on to spend 11 years in a federal prison. This is the story of Larry Lawton told in his own words. The Big Interview with Offscript his story is an incredible we've had to break this down because there are so many parts to the life of Larry Lawton now I'll let him intro first and foremost this little short intro this sets the scene of as to who exactly is Larry Lawton I'm the only ex-con in the United States ever recognised on the floor of the United States Congress nobody's ever done that and uh, and nobody's ever been a went from being a criminal to an honorary police officer ever so I'm the only one in the United States. So he went from a criminal to an honorary police officer. You're only going to hate here this evening about his nefarious activities because right. his story about he became one of the most wanted men in America. He was on the FBI's most wanted list in 1996. That was during the height of his crime spree. Over seven years, he escaped detection. Over 20 jewellery stores he broke into. He got away with between, you had to estimate, between 15 and 18 million US dollars in diamonds alone. Okay, it's an unbelievable story. He would go, and I'm not spoiling anything here. I should point out he was eventually caught. He spent 11 years in federal prison mm. for the crimes that he committed. So, in, in nowhere are we glamorizing it, are we celebrating it? This is just our one part of Larry Lawton's remarkable story. So, we've got to start all the way at the beginning because what did take Larry Lawton, now 58 years of age, what took down, uh, took him down a life of crime? I grew up in the Bronx in Brooklyn, New York, uh, and in, in New York City, uh, the gangsters pretty much run the neighborhoods, and I was lured into that. I grew up in a very Italian, Irish, uh, ethnic neighborhood where the, the criminal, the heads of criminal families lived, and the lure of that power and that money and the, the way they handled themselves was a big lure for a young man. And this is in the late 60s, early 70s. So as a very young man, I was 11 years old doing what they call football tickets. And that's where you you take bets on football games. And when you take the bets, you end up getting 25 cents for every dollar you bring in. So as a young man at 12 years old, I was making approximately $125 a week. Now, this is back in the early 70s, so you you could imagine the power and the war. And I used to go door to door collecting money, and then I would take that and give it to the head guy. And I got into that war of easy money and learning how that business worked. 
This already puts me into the stage of a Martin Scorsese film. Oh, yeah. We're just like, it's that early vignette that you see from the childhood and how they first get the door. Like, that's exactly what he's describing. Yeah. It's Henry Hill carrying the umbrella for the, the gangster as they run across to take a phone call from the phone box. Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, Goodfellas there. You mentioned Martin Scorsese. What it immediately springs to my mind is Robert De Niro's direct, uh, directorial debut. I think it was a Bronx tale. Very similar. Young kid in the neighborhood gets his first chance by earning a little bit of extra cash. I mean, 120 $25 a week, early 1970s, for a 12-year-old. It's unbelievable. But it begs the question, how does one transition from starting off, making a quick buck, into becoming a master jewel thief? At first, at 17 years old, I went into the military to get away from this life. But I never fully got away from the crime, even while in the United States Coast Guard. So I stayed uh, in the Coast Guard until I got hurt. And when I got out of the Coast Guard, I was right back into the neighborhood I was at. And at that time, now I'm a 25-year-old, pretty big guy, strong muscle man, and I work for the mobsters. I don't know how you call it in your country, the gangsters or the mobsters. And I would protect card games. I was the muscle for the card games. And I did what they call bookmaking, the same thing I did when I was a younger man, as a younger kid, but in a different way. It was bigger bets. It was straight bets. It wasn't football tickets that were innocent with the neighbor who was a teacher or the other neighbor who was a uh, electrician. Now I did it with other people who were in the gangster business and people who made big bets. Then I, my first robbery was a setup. My first robbery was a insurance job, which what happened was the owner himself wanted his robber, his jewelry store robbed. He would get the insurance money and we would get the jewelry. Everybody was happy. So he gave us when and how many people would be in there and stuff of that nature. From there, I took that and said, wait a minute, I made $150,000 in my pocket. I said, wow, this was easy. And then I went, started doing them without the people knowing. So instead of being setups, they were regular robberies. Now, I want to emphasize this on your show. I'm not proud of the robberies. I'm not proud of causing people any kind of harm, if you want to call it that. Or I didn't hurt people in robberies. But you still put fear in them, and you do hurt them in a, in a kind of way. And I'm not proud of that. So that's why today I work with agencies and countries and everybody to prevent robberies, to help catch the people who are doing the bad things. Amazing, right? He's wow. captivating the way that he tells he's a re- that story. He's a real life gangster is what he is. This is not from a film. This is not from a TV show. This is real life. And again, as a state, we're not celebrating his nefarious activities. It's merely his story told in his words. Thus far, what do we know? Well, we know that he began by selling sports tickets uh, as a young boy at the age of 12. He then progressed into robberies. He was doing it as uh, set-up jobs. He then realised that huge sums of money could be made, I hate to say it, by essentially thieving, by 
robbing jewellery stores. We're at that point in this story because, well, the next question had to be, how did he set about committing these robberies? More fascinating stuff from Larry Lawton. I had my own crew. Which, but nobody went to prison on my case except me because everybody's gone. I don't know where they are, and that's good by me. I, I went away for not ratting. I believe a person's word means something. And that doesn't mean that I'm supporting crime or anything like that. That means that what the, when I stopped doing this, the crime has stopped. There's nobody else to get. I was the ringleader, I was the, the boss of the crew, and I'm the one who should be held accountable, and I was held accountable by, by the government. And uh, But they were very thought out, they were very meticulously planned. They were, what they call in, in here is they were cased. I cased every store for weeks and months sometimes to make sure all the all the intricacies were done, meaning who was coming, who was going, was what time the mailman was coming, what cars the employees came in, so I knew if somebody came in early that he was there already. I knew how many people, when the customers would start coming in, where the police were in the neighborhood, so I knew if you know how long it would take them to get there, even if they did find out I was in there at that time. So I cased these stores very, very meticulously, and I did that. And then I brought my crew in to help. It, it would take two or three of us to, to load up a whole store of jewelry in in bags. We used to use pillowcases and fill pillowcases up with diamonds and watches and everything that's in a jewelry store. You could lift that and just place it on a Martin Scorsese voiceover. Yeah. I cased the joint very meticulously. <laughs> and it's Ray Liotta or Joe Pesci giving the narration. It's, it's Joe Pesci, just the end of that there. It's, it's Joe Pesci in Home Alone. Yeah, when he's talking well, he didn't the case the joint there, did he? Because he didn't bargain for a 10-year-old boy. But remember, they, I've watched it over Christmas, as we always do Home Alone, but there, Joe Pesci, the jewellery in all of these houses on this row of houses where, of course, Kevin McAllister lives. But we're smiling and laughing. This is serious. This isn't a, a movie. This is real. This is real. This is a man who broke into not one, not two, over 20 jewellery stores across the US. I always wonder with something like this, once you've done one or two hits, you probably have enough money that you could stop. So it's oh. the fact that people keep going with it that tells you so much that it's not really about the money, is we it? We will get to that because he explains the reasons why he kept going. But what's next? Once you've pulled off a heist, and again, we're getting hopefully fascinating insight into all of this because whilst, yes, it's criminal, it's still interesting, still want to know after you've pulled off a heist what happens to the jewellery because in the movies we often see the crime bosses will get kicked a pair of earrings and the doll the mall the wife will then end up with them do they do that do they sell on the diamonds what happens after a heist has been pulled off once you rob a jewellery store you might have a million dollars in jewels what do you do with it I mean you're not going to open up a store right there and start selling it so you what they need they call a fence a fence is a person who takes stolen property. It could be anything, and it's a go-between. Let's say watches. That guy would be able to take hot watches, or hot meaning stolen, and then distribute them different parts of the country, maybe break them up, maybe in jewelry. I had one fence. I would go to my fence. I would give him, let's say it was a million dollars in diamonds. I would give him that. He would give me about 30 cents on the dollar. So he would give me $300,000 in cash, and I'm done. He would then break up that jewelry, melt down the gold, reset the diamonds, and they would be all over the place. 
So they could be in Dubai, they could be in England, they could be in Africa, they could be in Russia, or they could be in the United States across the country from where the robbery happened. So there's a number of ways the fence gets rid of the jewelry. I used to get it to one fence. That was my goal, get it to the one person that I know I could trust. Because most people get robbed by the fence being either in cahoots with the police or he got caught on another case and he says, hey, listen, I know a big jewel robber and he always comes to me and he's going to come to me and I'll let you know and then they catch you that way. That's not how I got caught, and we'll get into that, I'm sure. But uh, that's what a fence does. Oh, yeah, you've got to stick around for the story of how Larry Lawton was caught. But we heard there then his fence. He had one guy who he trusted that he took the stolen jewellery to. He would get his cash. He would go into the midnight air, and it was up to the fence then to sell on the jewellery. We've heard as well, 15 to 18 million US dollars is what Larry Lawton over a seven-year stretch stole from jewellery stores. I wanted to know how much did he personally make from his nefarious activities and the revelation that follows, well, it's quite something. I probably personally made between three and five million dollars. Wow. In my end. And obviously, I'd blow it. I mean, most gangsters, and this was said by John Gotti, and it's a true story, and I knew John Gotti. And he actually said, if I ever heard of a gangster with a 401k, I'm going to kill him. Meaning, we don't retire or we don't quit the job. So it's something that that uh, organized crime guys, and I was with the Gambinos. I was in the, I was what they call an associate, which uh, put me in the outskirts of the uh the mobsters, the big mobsters. And I was what they call an earner. I made a lot of money for a lot of people. Whenever I made a big, big lump sum of money, I used to kick up an envelope to my bosses and they would get a big envelope of cash and go from there. I mean, so every, I was what they call an earner in the mob and a person who who makes a lot of people a lot of money. You don't want to kill the goose who's laying the golden egg. Well, we know uh, and we've heard already from Larry about what then happens once you have got your jewels, once you've got the diamonds, how you, I guess, escape captivity, what you then do with those jewels to ensure that you get cold hard cash. What I wanted to know, and anyone out there that has seen the film Goodfellas, the, the epic score by Martin Scorsese, will remember the scene. Robert De Niro, who plays the character Jimmy Conway, they have, is it the Lufthansa heist? I think so, yeah. It's the big, yeah, it's the airplane heist where... They've made an awful lot of money. Yeah. And he warns his crew, right, keep low. Do not spend that cash. Don't go wild with it because the authorities will be keeping an eye on us. But they're wanting to have a party that night to celebrate the fact that they've pulled off this very lucrative heist. What ends up happening is, and I shouldn't laugh, but two of his associates, one of them arrives and he's bought his wife a pink convertible that he's parked outside of this kind of rough neighbourhood in New York. One of his other crew members strolls in. He's bought his wife a new fur coat. Jimmy Conway, Robert De Niro's character, goes absolutely crazy at this because they're just bringing un, well, they're bringing unwanted attention to themselves. So I wanted to find out from Larry, was that kind of accurate? How did you ensure, what precautions did you take to ensure that after the fact, you still escaped captivity? And he had this to say. Yes, a matter of fact, that's a great scene. Uh, uh, Robert De Niro's character actually goes, gets very mad at the people for showing off because that's a telltale sign 
line. When a major robbery happens anywhere, the, the local police and the organized crime task force and even the FBI, they know who, who's the kind of criminals in the neighborhood, if you want to call it that. Now, if they see everybody, like you said, buying a new car, a new house, it's going to put off a sign that it's that crew that did the robbery. Uh, what we used to do is I used to delve out the money in increments so the person wouldn't get all the money so they couldn't do that. So if we made 150000 let's just say, and one guy was going to get 20000 I'd give him 5000 this month, 5000 the next month, 5000 the next month. It sounds small, but it's a way for that person to manage his own money. You're remembering, you're working with criminals who aren't the best at, at managing anything, myself included. But I had very good control over when and how I spent the money to not uh, – elicit any attention. I even used to what they call wash the money. I would I would go to a casino and put money in the casino cage and then go to a table and say, I want 20,000 in chips. I have a marker that's called. They would give me $20,000 in chips. I would play back and forth, stay there for an hour or two, maybe three hours, win or lose, and then go to the cage and collect money. And then it looks like I just won money from a casino. People who you go with who don't know what's going on, they're even saying, hey, yeah, Larry had a great night. Boy, he won $80,000. So then when you have that money, it's justifiable. Where did you get that money? I still think that looks a tiny bit dodgy. It's like <laughs> massive robbery took place down the road and Larry just won $80,000 at the casino, would you believe? What an incredible coincidence. And especially if he's doing that on a semi-regular basis. Yeah, Larry's yeah. won big at the casino he again. He's the luckiest son of, a, <laughs> son of a gun out there. But that's what he, he did. And he actually said as well, he set up a vendor company that would act as a front and he would kind of move and, and money launder that way as well. And it reminds me of, uh, have you seen Breaking Bad? Where... Um, Mike, who's who's obviously the the henchman, the main henchman for the, the the arch criminal, he's got a group of guys who he has to pay out, and when they're in jail, he's got to pay them yeah. to keep silent. So when he was saying you've got to pay them in instalments, you are dealing with people who don't manage money. Yeah, exactly that, and I did later ask him about that. How did they trust you? And he said, I always made sure I paid. I'm not a backstabber. And, and you heard earlier, he isn't quote unquote a rat. And there's a lot more to come for that because this is only the first part. We're serialising this because there's so much to bring you from Larry Lawton. I want to get to this part, though, because, as I said at the, the, the outset, he has now become a celebrated author. He's become a TV personality, mm. which doesn't really chime with the mob. We know that he was an associate of the crime family, the Gambino family, one of the five families of New York. So I guess the obvious question is, now that you've kind of become famous, what was the mob's reaction to that? Very good question, Chris. And believe it or not, uh, they're very happy. Everybody in the business I was in knew I, I did not rat. Nobody went to prison on my case or no, no raids came because of what Larry Lawton said or anything of that nature. And it, again, it's not I'm past those years of even thinking about that to do anything of that, like that nature. And I'll tell you what, the government never really pressed me on any of that either. The government wants my knowledge on how things are done. 
and how you would set up a store and the insurance companies want to know what better ways to protect the store. And the mobsters themselves were very impressed with me. They supported me because, believe it or not, a lot of these mobsters don't want their kids getting into the business they got in. They're not saying, oh, great, look at this. This is a great business, son. Come on in. You know, because you either die or you go to prison. There's only two ways out. I went to prison. Uh, people get killed or die. Uh, and it's not a, you know, business where you go and you work until you're 65 and you get a retirement and you, you lay on the beach in sunny South Florida. It's not like that. And the gangsters themselves are very appreciative of the way I, one, never told on any of the businesses, the dealings that go on behind the scenes. And I, I never even mentioned names. In my book, I mentioned names, but they're, the person's either dead or there's a names have been changed. He didn't rat did Larry Lawton so much so he was offered a plea deal he was offered three years in incarceration he said nope and he took the full 12 years you're going to hear tomorrow on what he went through his description of solitary confinement literally is one of the most harrowing things that you will hear we've reached the point where Larry has described how he went about performing these heists what he did once he got the cash and now how we're getting on to how he got caught so he made what did he make personally between three and five million US dollars he stole jewels you got your hand up, Sono. Well, I was just wanting to say that was one of the things that struck me from those initial clips that we didn't really talk about. He's only getting a third of the value of the yeah. items that he stole. Because yeah. once he's he's passing on the danger of dealing with the the, the, the stolen product products to someone else who's inheriting all that risk. So, so he, he's taking something for free and he's getting paid for it. But the value, the sales value is so much more... Yeah, it's the riskier part. It's riskier, the riskier part, it's the right? Riskier part, Which you don't think about as much. You're then going to get those jewels or melt down that gold and, and you take an awful lot more risk because then questions are asked, oh, where do these diamonds come from? Where does this gold come from? So in that instance, we heard he took 30 cents from the dollar. So if he stole a million dollars worth of jewellery, he would walk away with 300,000 cash. But let's get to it. How, after seven years, over 20 jewellery stores, between 15 and 18 million dollars worth of diamonds stolen, how was he apprehended? Buckle in, folks. Take a little listen. Larry Lawton gets caught by excellent police work by the FBI. FBI is the best in the world at what they do. And the actual incident, I'm going to explain how I actually got caught, and it's a great part of the book. I did a robbery in Pennsylvania, and during that robbery, we did not know at a prior time there was a robbery in that strip mall that I did, and people were on heightened alert. Somebody heard the commotion going on in the jewelry store I was in. They came out, they looked into the store, they see what we were doing. We see them, it's me and my partner, we run out of the store with the jewelry. Little do we know, the owner of the jewelry store that we just put down got out of his flex cuffs. We used to use flex cuffs, they're like the wire ties, electrical wire ties. He gets out of that and as we're running out the door, Chris, Shots start being fired at us. Bang, bang, the glass goes flying. And we're like, oh my God, we jump in the car. I look up, I'm at the windshield. There now the car is pulled up right in front of the jewelry store, head to head in. So we're like as we were customers. I jump into the store, I look up, and the owner of the jewelry store levels a gun right at my head. I duck, the bullet goes through the windshield, 
skims the top of my head, goes inside of my partner and into his arm. We get away with a big screeching tires. This is something out of the movies you'd never see. We get out. We had the whole entire uh, getaway route planned. We get onto the highway. Now, we've got to get to Brooklyn. We're in Pennsylvania, which is about a two-hour ride, maybe a little less. So we on the highway, we got to go through a toll. Now, there's a bullet hole right in the windshield. What do you do? I thought quickly. I saw an 18-wheeler in a, in a toll boot. I pull up very tight to the 18-wheeler. It goes through. I glide through just past the man taking the toll. So he can't see the windshield. He looks at me. And now, at this time, the blood that's ripping down my head, it's just a little trickling of blood, is on the right side of my head. So it's not on the left side where I'm giving the man the money. I didn't even notice until after I looked in the mirror. I gave the man a dollar. It was a dollar toll. I gave him the dollar. And while I'm giving him the dollar, I hear, be on the lookout for a late model. And we left. The guy didn't even notice. I noticed he didn't notice. We get through that toll. How the FBI ends up catching us is, I did not know this at the time, they used to flood the area and check all the other stores in an area for the same MO I had. Little did I know that one of the owners of another jewelry store I did not rob, that was miles away, ended up getting my license plate number to sell me a ring because they wanted to sell me a ring because what I used to do is go in to, to case the store and I used to say, hey, listen, I'm looking for a ring. I'm looking for about a carat and a half ring for my wife who I'm married 10 years now and I wanted to upgrade her ring and they're starting to show me rings. So they're looking for a $10,000 sale. So when I said, uh, okay, thank you, I left. This lady went and got my plate number thinking she can call me, knew somebody can call me and get my, uh, get try to sell me a diamond. Little did, did I know, still, the car that we used was a renter car, and it was a guy who worked for me in the bookmaking business, and he was 350 pounds. So I'm obviously not 350 pounds, and the cops said, wow, that's not him, but they looked at who the co-driver was. The co-driver was me, which I did. I had a record already with associations with organized crime. So when they got that, they kept digging, and then they went back to all the jewelry stores that had the same M.O., and they showed a picture of me. Now, I never used disguise and never was picked out of a lineup, or, or they never gave a good description until they started placing it and putting it all together. They placed me in one store in Atlanta. They placed me in another store in what they call Savannah, Georgia, another one in Maryland another one in Florida. So they placed me at those scenes by videos of all the stores around them. So the FBI did such great legwork, I have to give them kudos. And the great question from the FBI was, hey Larry, you never hurt anybody. You were the best we ever seen do it. Why didn't you quit? You had money, you had everything. And it was the greatest question at all, Chris, because it really was it was the excitement. Getting away with these robberies was a high. It was like I used to want to be a fly on the wall after I got away. 
Now, I never used a gun during my robberies, and that's why I beat a life sentence, because I never used a firearm. I didn't need one. I only used a BB gun for intimidation. That was it. So it's really amazing how the FBI is that good and that good of of legwork and organization and money. And there's an old saying in the United States, the, the local cops don't have the money or the resources to get you. It's the FBI who's got all the time, resources, and money to do whatever they want to get you. Amazing. The voice of Larry Walter. And when you strip it back there, how was he caught? He was caught because an old old lady, a jewellery store owner, he went in to case the joint. He liked a ring. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll come back. And she went, hmm, I want to make the sale. She went over to the window. She took down his licence plate so she could get back in touch with him and try and make that sale. And it was a hire car. And it was a hire car. Amazing. Also, I love that he stopped to pay a toll. He's on the run from from the authorities and he stops to pay a toll. Of course you have to because you don't want to draw more attention. Exactly. One of the questions, and we talk about it, and in many respects, I think mob movies, would it be fair to say mob movies over the years, I'm thinking Martin Scorsese's of this world, have glamorised the mafia? Um, No. I would say yes and no in the sense of, yeah, it kind of creates a storyline and it creates these compelling characters. But at the same time, I feel like it's pretty clear that all of those people, sort of what we heard from Larry yesterday, that there's only two outs in that situation. Yes. You go to prison or you die. Yeah. yeah. And even in The Irishman, you know, I thought it was really effective what Scorsese did with sort of just calling out references to certain people and how long they managed to make yeah. it in the game. Yeah, you're right. And I think there's a difference between a glamorous movie and a glamorizing of the subject matter. Because Goodfellas is a classic example of, yes, it's stylishly shot, it it looks great, you know, there's a captivating nature to it, but it's all the same. All the plots are the same. It's the rise and fall. So the first half of the movie is is charting the rise, and they always meet their comeuppance. Name me one mob movie from Scarface to Goodfellas where the guy gets away with it and he just walks off into the sunset. This doesn't happen. Mm. Mm, interesting. When, uh, if I was to ask both of you as well, the mafia, the mob, do you think of it as still being present today? We think of it 60s, 70s. Uh, US was a very different time back then, of course. Do you still think it's prevalent today? I, I do think so. I don't know much about the subject, but just from my perception, I do think it is, but maybe not in the, the ways that we remember it. So I think there's this kind of because of these movies, when you think of the mob, you often think of Italian mafia yeah. or Italian mafia in the U.S. But of course, I would think now of more like Russian mob, mobs, maybe Indian mobs, you know, in different parts of Asian mobs. I would imagine that is still quite prevalent today. Rob? The mob? Yeah. The mafia I, I, of- I've, I've heard from various people that they're still at large. And in, in, in the US, and obviously, in, if we're talking about the Italian mafia yes. in Italy as well, well, I it's a question. Rain tight lipped about that, to be I, honest. I'm be just, careful. just what I've heard on the grapevine. Those Italian suit salesmen will be after you again, Rob. But I wanted to put that question to Larry. He's been out of the game now. Of course, he has become an honorary police officer. He has turned his life around since those 11 years that he spe- spent in a federal prison. But I wanted to know from him what does the Italian mob, the Italian mob that has been featured in all of these movies, Goodfellas, The Irishman, of course, which is out now. What does it look like today? And he had this to say. Well, that's a great question, Chris, and I'm going to give you a great answer. It's actually worse, and I'll tell you why. Uh, back in the day when I was around, and I'm now 58, so I'm talking 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 
back when in in the time when I was in, there was more respect from the older people and the more code of honor and more. Nobody got killed for something stupid. Nobody uh, got in trouble for something stupid. Everybody was out to do one thing: make money and live a good life. In today's mob, it's more dangerous, and I'll tell you why. You get these young, hothead kids that want to make a name for themselves, so what do they do? They're quick to pull a gun, they're quick to do something without thinking it through. Obviously, more people get in trouble, and uh, more incidents happen. Just la- and within the last six months in the United States, 17 members of the Lucchese family were arrested for uh, a murder, an extortion, and a gambling ring. So it's good. It keeps happening. The government, it's a cat and mouse game that keeps happening. I'm glad I'm not in it anymore. And I got out of it in the right way by going to prison and not ratty. But it's not going to go away. But it's more dangerous because these kids are more hot-headed with drugs and everything else that goes along with that. And before you know it, people get killed for the stupidest reason. Scary stuff, that, from Larry Lawson. His view on the mafia that we, as I say, have come to know through these movies and what it is today. So after being caught, was there intimidation from the mafia side to potential witnesses in order to try and get him off the charge that he was accused of? And equally, did the FBI put any pressure on him to give up his crew to give up some of the big names fascinating this this is what larry had to say the fbi offered me three years to cooperate three years i was facing at the time i was facing life in prison this is before i beat the gun charge because i didn't use a gun i ended up beating that charge i was only facing three years and now this is hard but i have a i had at the time a 13 month uh, 18 month old baby and a six-year-old son. And believe me, that's why I do what I do today, Chris, because I have those children. And when I got out of prison, my daughter was 13 years old and my son was 18. And the reason I do what I do is because of the hurt I know I cause my own kids and everybody else who gets involved in crime. There's more damage done besides yourself to family members, to other people, to victims, to, there's, a, there's a lot of um, damage that's done to people who are not just you. But I was offered three years, and it's not about, oh, they're going to shoot you or this, because I, I was the tough guy. I was the guy that laid guys' arms on curbs and snapped. I was the guy who used to go collect money. I was one of the tough guys. And it's not about anybody can get killed at any given day, but it's something that's in you. I looked in the mirror my whole time in prison, Chris, and knew that my word means something. My word means something. When I told your associate that I will be on the phone today at 11.15 Eastern Time, I will be on the phone at 11.15 Eastern Time. That is my word. I still live on my word. I, li- I think a person's word means more uh, than anything. And I was really given a rough ride in prison by the federal government because I wouldn't rat. I ended up doing four 12-year sentences, run concurrent, but they sent me to the worst prison in the world where I was strapped down naked, beaten and tortured and urinated on by guards. And we'll get into the prison system if you want in a bit, how, how the United States prison system is the worst prison system in the world. I don't care what country you go to, except maybe a, a, a really third world country of some sort. But the United States prison system is terrible. And in fact, 
they tried to make me tell by putting me through very, very rough situations, by putting me in the hole, by abusing me, and uh, I just stayed strong. And it's something that's in you that people who rat, and Sammy Gravano who ratted, that's in them. That's in them. They're going to give any excuse in the world why they ratted. Any excuse in the world. Oh, he was going to tell on me. Uh, I didn't like him. He said this bad about me. I don't believe any of that. It's either in you or it's not. Powerful stuff mm. from Larry. A code of ethics. That is right there. The Can I just clarify, by the way, our associate producer, Tom Paul Smith, <laughs> is in no way affiliated or has no ties whatsoever <laughs> to the Mafia. Yeah, it is. When he said your associate, it was a bit like, OK, that's just producer Tom in the corner. You're making out as if he's a dawn of off script. But, uh, he could be. I could, see that. I could see that for him. <laughs> he's an underboss. That is kind of what he Capo is. Capo regime. <laughs> Tom Paul Smith. He's nothing, like he's nothing like that at all, <laughs> Rob. He's the most unintimidating man. Oh, that's a bit harsh. I shouldn't really say that. He is yeah. very, at times he can be incredibly intimidating. But there you hear from Larry, whether you agree with that or not. Tom's you know, the his, boss. He's he is, the boss. You're the underboss. And me and Sonal are just foot soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> foot soldiers. That not teenage mutant uh, hero turtles. No, you get, yeah, they, that's Sopranos. Soldiers, they call them. Foot soldiers. soldiers. I'm right in saying foot soldiers is from Teenage Mutant. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, that is. Ninja but turtles. soldiers, they call them soldiers in the Sopranos. Yes, they do. But you've heard there from him. He was, and there's a lot more from it. I had to cut an awful lot because he, he takes real aim at the penitentiary system in the US. There are bits we Not will the first hear. time someone, a guest of our show, no. has said that, by no. the way. The, I mean, he has said it. it inhumane cropped up a number of times some of the things and one of those things and we'll get to this now because solitary confinement the whole the shoe it's called numerous different things Larry spent three years of 11 years he was sentenced to 12 at four 12 year concurrent sentences he saw out 11 three of which were spent in solitary confinement I wanted Larry to articulate what solitary confinement was like transport us there if he could what does it do to an individual and more than that how do you survive it mentally and let me tell you this is not for the faint hearted this is vivid picture of what solitary confinement really is like it is deprivation at its worst. I spent 11 straight months in the hole. Three years out of my 11, I was in the hole. 11 straight months where they say you're supposed to get an hour of what they call recreation a day. And that hour of recreation, you get take out of your cell in handcuffs, put into another cell that's 20 foot by 10 foot cage. So you're like an animal. Not only do they feed you through a chute in the door, and they spit in it, they put garbage in your food. So you, you have to take that out and throw it away. I've, I've thought of suicide in the hole. A friend of mine killed himself in the hole and told me he was gonna do it. Uh, the hole is the worst thing we can do to a human being, period, because we are social. We are social people, we are social animals. And without having any social interactions, you will literally go crazy. And it is by far the worst of the worst. It's deprivation at a, at a level. It's hard to, it, it, I'm thinking here, and, and I have goosebumps on my arms right now, Chris, because thinking back how I survived that and how I did push-ups in red. And I used to do a thousand push-ups and a thousand crunches in 45 minutes because I got to got in such 
mental shape as much as physical shape to do something to keep your keep your body and your mind from going totally crazy and they'll put you they won't give you a shower though they're supposed to give you a shower three days a week and now they'll have a shower in the cell and here's what they tell the public oh look they have a shower in their cell they don't tell you that they shut off the cold water and it's boiling water so you can't take a shower they, they shut off the hot water and make it freezing cold, which I didn't care, but at least I got water on me. It, what they do to you and what the human body can withstand is amazing. And I often tell people this all the time. I should have been somebody to show people how to survive uh, tortures or prisoners of war because it's all mental. It's more mental than it is physical. As a physical guy, I withstood a lot but it was my mental toughness. I would literally design a house in my head, Chris, right down to the electrical sockets in every room. Literally, the view, the window design, the where the table would go, every, and I would do room by room and literally be an architect in my head to keep my mind doing something. They would not give you any book in the hall except a religious book. And he said that he read an awful lot religious books and re- religious texts that were given to Larry. That was an escape for him. Eleven months he spent, uh, three years of his eleven, but eleven months straight. Was it dark? Was he in darkness? Yeah, darkness at times. He said there would be weeks that you wouldn't see, you wouldn't be able to see the hand in front of your face. He, and he, he, you know, he went on to quote the Eighth Amendment, etc., which does state that it quite, uh, prohibits the federal government from imposing excessive bail, excessive fines, cruel and unusual punishments on a human. He said, listen, he gets that some people on this earth have done heinous horrendous things but he said having been there and done that you heard it there in his own words it is the worst thing you can do to a human it breaks you in ways that he didn't even think imaginable but in this final little clip now well because he did come out you're absolutely right he saw light at the end of the tunnel after 11 years in a US federal prison he was released and I wanted to know what was it that made him determined to turn his life around and go straight well you know I, I think it's a lot of internal stuff uh, you know, when I, when I was in prison, Chris, I saw so many young people, young, 21, 22 years old, coming to prison. And once that happens, their life is pretty much over. That's why I was fighting the abuses going on in prison. Uh, what I saw in prison, Chris, would, would make any man just puke. Uh, from I was in a cell, and the cell next to me, the guards came in, and they literally, you could hear the bone snap. And then when the man came out on a stretcher, his, he was laying flat on a stretcher, but his right leg was turned like an L, literally turned like an L. And it actually hit the, the, the door. It hit the door uh, jam. And it, it, the, I, I heard him scream. And I think, what is going on in our society that we're not trying to help people instead of making them worse? Because when that man gets out of prison, He's either going to be a psychopath, and and I don't want him living next to you. I don't want him living next to me. Or I don't want him living next to my grandmother or anybody I, I know because that man is a time bomb waiting to explode. So we need to start helping people. My goal when I got out of prison was to prevent young people from going to prison, and that's what I do. But it also it drives me nuts 
when I see people say very, oh, I've never committed a crime. I'll never do anything wrong. And that's when I always ask them, have you ever sped? Have you ever drove 15, 20 miles over the speed limit? Because if you have and you killed someone, you're going to prison if they hit your homicide. You know, usually that tells people, wait a minute, I've done that. And it could have happened to me. What happens if something happened and I killed somebody and I was gone? I made a bad choice. Mm. Now, anybody who says they've never done anything wrong, I'm really suspect of them anyway, because that person's not human. The voice there of Larry Lawton. So he, he admitted he, he turned his life around in part because he had two children, age of 13 and 18, after spending 11 years in prison. But more than that, he wanted to, to change the lives of young people because he had seen what the penitentiary system does. It doesn't, it doesn't kind of reward, it doesn't promote rehabilitation. What it promotes is punishment. You did wrong and you will do the time and you will do the time hard. And that's why he came out and invested and very interested in, in helping others. You did get the quiz him on some of the... Yeah, so a little lighter. I did want to have a little bit of kind of fun with him and I wanted to, to kind of ask him about heist movies. This is a man, a master jewel thief, a man who did it for over seven years, a man who got away with 15 to 18 million US dollars. And I just had a little bit of fun asking him about some of the plot lines from some of the big heist movies. Ocean's Eleven is the obvious one. The remake with George Clooney, with Brad Pitt, with Matt Damon. Take a little listen. Well, let's talk Ocean's Eleven. I'll tell you, the big thing that sticks out of me at that heist is just too many people. <laughs> it would be, that, 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 that would be a rat. You know, there's an old saying in prison, and I think Benjamin Franklin said in the United States, three can keep a secret if two are dead. Think about that. Three can keep a secret if two are dead. There's just too many people involved in Ocean's Eleven without somebody... Uh, saying, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to make a lot of money by the government's going to give me a million dollars just by telling on them. A couple other things struck out of me on the Ocean's Eleven, and I love the movies. Let me let me emphasize that. I'm a movie buff myself, and I enjoy going on that. But some things always stick out at me, like the seismic thing underneath uh, the casino that shook the whole casino and took out the power for the whole city. That was unrealistic. Number two, uh, Inside the vaults with the little guy in the box and him jumping around in a vault. That vault has cameras and they, I know what they did, you know, switching the cameras and all that, but there's redundancy that that couldn't happen. Uh, And also, how about just walking out of the casino with the money? That, I think they missed the thing. I think they could have come up with a better escape plan than these guys walking in after they said that was like a flashbang grenade and, oh, uh, you know, with those in guys and they all walk right out and right into the truck and they leave. I mean, that wouldn't happen either. The head of the casino would be down there. He would be talking to the people. They wouldn't just walk out like that. He's given an awful lot of thought to that. Yeah, and he did say he loves the movies, but Larry, sometimes they're not as realistic. (laughs) Sometimes they take a few licenses with the plot for entertainment's sake. Yes, he's well aware of that. He's a proper movie buff, is Larry. He is a movie buff. There was a lot more besides, but a massive thank you to Larry Lawton. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 